G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and I'm a solicitor with the Elder Abuse Service at Gosford Legal Aid. Today I want to speak about the line that is crossed when trying to protect an older person from manipulation or abuse becomes exerting control over the older person and can become a form of abuse in itself. This case is a tricky one. There are two sides who each give their version of events and actions of both sides are questionable. Each could be seen as trying to control and manipulate the older person. Both claim that their actions were only in the older person's interest. Who is to be believed? Vera May Simpson died on 16th of September 2005 at the age of 102 years. After her death, legal proceedings were started to determine whether her last will was valid and who should receive all of her estate. On one side of the battle was an old friend, David Dickman. On the other side was two of her previous neighbours and the supposed beneficiary of her last will, the Salvation Army New South Wales Property Trust, which I'll refer to as the Salvation Army. But the battle between the parties started years before Vera's death, and Vera was smack dab in the middle of it, being pulled between them like a tug-of-war rope. I'm going to be honest and say up front it will be pretty obvious which side I fall on, and it's entirely because of the way the information is presented in the court judgement. The judge, Justice White, makes it pretty clear which side he falls on, and that influenced how the facts are presented, which in turn affects how I present it to you. But if you have a different view, I'd love to hear it. Before I get into the facts of this case, I wanted to give a shout out and a big thank you to Barrister Sarah Carr. Sarah recommended that we cover this case because of the involvement of the aged care facility in arranging for Vera to do new estate planning documents that overrode her long-held arrangements. So a big thank you to Sarah Carr for recommending this case. The Facts David Dickman met Vera Simpson in 1965, when he was only 19 years old and she was 63. At the time, Vera didn't have any close family, as her husband had died 17 years earlier and she had no children. Vera and David developed a close relationship and she became like a mother to him. In correspondence to him, Vera had described herself as your second mum. In 1977, David entered into a contract to purchase from Vera an investment property that she owned in North Balgaula in Sydney. It was many years later, in 1991, that David finally paid the purchase price in full and received a fresh transfer document. But he didn't register the transfer, so the property remained in Vera's name, although David had been paying the rates and all expenses since, and receiving rent for the property since 1977. This property dealing wasn't really an issue between them, It didn't appear that Vera was in a rush to get her money or David to change title, but it does become relevant much later on. From 1991, when Vera was 89 years old, she began needing assistance. For the next five years, David would help Vera with doing maintenance and repairs around her house, arranging and taking her to medical appointments, organising meals on wheels and home care, helping her arrange home insurance and paying her bills. In 1996, Vera had a fall and was taken to hospital. She was later moved into a residential aged care facility run by the Salvation Army called Elizabeth Jenkins Place. I'm just going to refer to it as the hostel. 
According to David, Vera said to him, quote, If I move there, I want you to keep visiting and looking after me. If you do, I'll leave you everything in my will. End quote. David said he promised Vera that he would continue to visit her and look after her, which he initially did, including visiting her every Monday to take her to a hydrotherapy pool. By 1997, Vera was substantially blind, and in August of that year, she signed a power of attorney appointing David as her attorney. Mr. Buckner was the solicitor that prepared the power of attorney document. David drove her to the appointment at Mr. Buckner's office, but Vera met with the solicitor alone. Almost a year later, in June 1998, Vera had a fall and was hospitalised again. Two days after her fall, she was back in the hostel, and she told David that she wanted to do a will. David suggested that she see Mr. Buckner again, but Vera wanted it done more quickly than that. So on that very day, the 11th of June, David prepared a handwritten will using a will kit form. The will appointed both David and Mr. Buckner as the executors and gave all of Vera's property to David. Vera signed the will that day. A couple of months after signing the handwritten will, Vera said that she wanted to do a proper will and asked to see Mr. Buckner. Mr. Buckner came to the hostel to speak with Vera twice and got instructions for the will. Vera said she wanted to leave everything to David and referred to him as her son. It was only when Mr. Buckner showed her the draft will that she told him that David wasn't actually her son and he was like a son to her. The draft will was corrected and Vera signed on the 23rd of September 1998. At the time, she was 96 years old. At the same time this was going on, August, September 1998, Vera had begun seeing a Dr. Baker. Dr. Baker said that Vera was mentally alert for a woman of her age, was of sound memory, had strong views, and was not easily influenced or suffering from delusions. This is evidence that she had capacity at the time of making that will. A year later, by October 1999, her condition was not so good. Medical records stated that she was emotionally labile due to her old age. I had to look up the word labile, and hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. It means easily altered. So her emotions were easily aroused, freely expressed, and tended to change quickly. I could have just said that, but if you're nerdy like me, you might appreciate the chance to learn a new word. Labile, meaning easily altered. Okay, so the medical record said that Vera was emotionally labile. She was depressed and had frequent tearful outbursts sometimes brought about by financial concerns, and the medical records noted that she did not have any family to help her with her financial affairs. This wasn't entirely correct, as David was her attorney and made sure that all of her bills were paid on time. What had actually happened was that an invoice for the hostel was sent to the wrong address, so David didn't get it in time and ended up paying it late. In the meantime, a staff member had spoken to some of Vera's old neighbours and told them that her fees weren't paid. They, in turn, told Vera and warned her that if her fees weren't paid, she would be kicked out. This appears to be the source of Vera's distress about her financial situation and fear of being forced to leave the hostel. David wrote an angry but polite letter to the manager of the hostel, providing proof that all fees had been paid up to date and asking that this be told to Vera. He also raised concerns that a staff member is giving this personal information to Vera's old neighbours and they have caused her unnecessary stress. There was no reply to that letter even though it raised a valid concern. A staff member was giving away Vera's personal, should have been confidential, information to other people. If there was a concern about the unpaid fees, it should have been taken up with David. After all, he was her appointed attorney. 
This all went down in September 1999. At the same time, while she was still under the belief that her fees weren't being paid and she was facing possible eviction, Vera met with Mr. Hopper, who was the solicitor for the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army, I remind you, owned the hostel in which she lives. According to Mr. Hopper, someone in the management of the hostel arranged for him to see Vera in relation to payment of her fees and her ongoing care. This is what Mr. Hopper stated in a letter to David's lawyer dated the 21st of September. However, it isn't clear whether he actually met with Vera to discuss payment of her fees and possible eviction, or if he did meet with her, when this was and what he told her. This raises questions for me because by the 13th of September, Vera's fees were paid in full. So if Mr. Hopper met with her after that, he should have been able to reassure her that there was no problem with her fees and that she wasn't going to be evicted. So I'm not sure if I believe that Mr. Hopper talked to her about that, but there was evidence that he did prepare a new will for Vera. Under the new will, she left her entire estate to the Salvation Army, who, you'll remember, Mr. Hopper worked for. On the 10th of September 1999, Vera did a new will, and there is conflicting information about how this came about and who organised it, but there were three main people involved. There was Mr. Hopper, the solicitor for the Salvation Army, who prepared the will. And there were two men who were Vera's neighbours before she moved into the hostel. They are Graham Nicholson and David Jeske. To avoid confusing neighbour David Jeske with friend of almost 40 years David Dickman, I'll refer to the neighbours by their last names. Graham Nicholson was an old neighbour of Vera from the time she moved into the hostel in January 1997 up until September 1999, he only saw her on a handful of occasions. Nicholson said that in early September, he asked Vera if she had done her will. She said she had and that she had left everything to David Dickman. Nicholson suggested that she leave it to the Salvation Army instead. Vera agreed and Nicholson said he would arrange it. He told the manager of the hostel that Vera wanted to leave her estate to the Salvation Army, and the manager gave him the phone number for Mr. Hopper. Mr. Hopper said that Jeske called him on the 8th of September and said that he was concerned that a person was trying to influence Vera into leaving her house to him. Later that day, Nicholson and Jeske went to Mr. Hopper's office and basically said that David Dickman was overly friendly and that they had heard of him befriending old ladies before to get a benefit. The manager of the hostel, Major Sneller, said he had also heard rumours that David Dickman had a habit of befriending elderly women for financial gain. However, the court found that there was no truth to these rumours and that somebody had been slandering David, probably Nicholson and Jeske. Mr Hopper said that on the 10th of September he met with Vera for 10 minutes and he was only alone with her for about 5 of those minutes. He said they had general discussions about the time of year and current events so he could judge her capacity before discussing her will. According to Mr Hopper, Vera was sharp as attack and definite in her wish to leave everything to the Salvation Army for the benefit of the hostel. He didn't ask her about her previous wills, so he didn't know that she had previously left everything to David, and didn't ask her why she was changing her mind. They briefly discussed making a power of attorney and he asked who she would like to appoint and she replied both David Jeske and Graham Nicholson. He didn't ask if she already had a power of attorney and if so who she had appointed. If he did ask, she would have told him that David Dickman was already her attorney and he could have checked whether she wanted to change that. 
If she didn't tell him David was appointed, this could have indicated that she did not have capacity to do a new power of attorney. So it's a shame he didn't ask that question. Mr. Hopper went away and prepared a new will and power of attorney and returned the same day. He saw her sign the power of attorney, but because the will needed two witnesses, he left the draft will with Nicholson to get it signed and returned to him. Shortly after Mr. Hopper left, Jesky and his wife arrived. Vera signed the will and it was witnessed by Nicholson and Mrs. Jesky, and the original document was given to Mr. Hopper a couple of days later. David Dickman gave evidence that two days after Vera had signed the will, she phoned him and said something like, quote, Love, I think I have done something silly. I need to see you today. Next door, Jeskies and Graham have been here the last few days, saying a lot of things. No one is here now so we can talk. I've been awake all night. I think they got me to sign some papers in the office. I don't understand what I've done. I didn't want to sign anything. I think we've had one put over us. I've got to see you today. End quote. There was an entry made in David's diary which supported his evidence. The entry for the 12th of September said, quote, Vera Re, DJ, GN, stressed and unsure, end quote. It can be assumed DJGN is a reference to David Jeske and Graham Nicholson. This feels believable to me because while you could create a supposedly old diary entry to back up your evidence, I feel like that if you did, the diary entry would have more details and support your story more, not just the tiny part of it. I mean, if you're going to fake evidence, wouldn't you fake it to be more valuable? The court believed David as well, and I quote, This statement by Mrs. Simpson is important. It casts serious doubt on whether Mrs. Simpson did know and appreciate what she was doing on 10th of September 1999. And it raises a question whether she was driven to signing the will and the power of attorney against her will. End quote. The day after the phone call, David went to the hostel to take Vera to her weekly hydrotherapy swim. Jesky and Nicholson were there when he arrived and there was a confrontation that left him and Vera shaken. Because they needed to talk, instead of going to the hydrotherapy pool, David took Vera to Collaroy Beach. According to David, she said, quote, there were papers I signed in the major's office. One of the army higher-ups who gave me the papers spoke softly. He might have been a solicitor. I couldn't read them and I don't know what I signed. They said something about, I had better sign those papers, otherwise they might not have room for me to stay in the other place where they could look after me. They said my fees had not been paid and I might have to leave. End quote. The court found David's evidence to be believable, which shows how much importance credibility can play in court cases like this one. There was no other witness to this conversation with Vera, only his word that had happened. David suggested that Vera speak to her solicitor, Mr. Buckner, whose office was just across the road. They called Mr. Buckner and he came to them and had a look at the copy of the power of attorney that Vera had. Mr. Buckner could see that Vera was confused and upset. He said he would visit her when she was feeling better and they would sort everything out. He also told her she didn't have to sign anything the Salvation Army asked her to if she wasn't sure about it. When they got back to the hostel, Jesky and Nicholson were still there. There was a physical confrontation involving shouting and swearing. It appears that Nicholson and Jesky were worried that Vera may have revoked the power of attorney or done a new will while she was out of the hostel with David. The three men were asked to leave and Vera was visibly upset and distressed. 
The next day, Mr. Hopper got a phone call from Jeske in which he raised his concern that David had gotten Vera to sign a new will or that he was going to. Without any instructions from Vera to do so, Mr. Hopper prepared another will and gave it to Jeske to get Vera to sign. She signed it in front of Jeske and Nicholson on the 14th of September. There was no evidence that the new will was read to her at all. So only four days after doing the first will with Mr. Hopper, she is signing another will. Both wills were pretty much the same, both left everything to the Salvation Army. Only the later version included the provision that the estate was to be used for the benefit of the hostel. Mr. Hopper said that he did this second will to include that extra provision. However, Jeske gave evidence that on that day, Nicholson called him and said that they needed to go see Vera again to get her to sign a new will that would cancel any will she had made with David. As Vera was residing in an aged care hostel, there are nursing notes which record how a resident is doing day to day. There was a nursing note from the 14th of September, the day she signed her last will. The notes record, quote, Resident was upset early morning, stated, I think I'm being mucked about a lot, end quote. That same day, David tried to visit Vera, but was physically prevented from doing so by Jeske and Nicholson. David sent a fax to the manager that day stating that Jeske and Nicholson were harassing Vera and preventing her from going about her normal day-to-day activities. The manager, Major Sneller, did not respond to that complaint. David tried to call Vera during the week, but the phone was either not answered or was answered by either Jeske or Nicholson and then hung up. AVO and guardianship. A group of Vera's distant relatives come into the picture now. Most of them were cousins, so I'll refer to them as their cousins. Jeske and Nicholson and Vera's cousins were determined that Vera not change her will again, so they sought and obtained an apprehended violence order, AVO, against David preventing him from seeing Vera. They also started proceedings before the guardianship tribunal. For the AVO, Vera had to sign a statement. Jeske took her to a solicitor who helped her prepare the statement. In the statement it said that when David and Vera went to Collaroy Park, David and Mr Buckner got her to sign a new will in David's favour. This never happened. So either this is what Vera told the solicitor because she was confused and it's an indication of her loss of capacity, or either Jeske, Nicholson or one of the cousins told the solicitor what to include in the statement and Vera signed it because they told her to. There is evidence that Jeske and Nicholson mistakenly believed that Vera had signed a document at Collaroy that day. They made several statements to that effect, so it's possible they gave instructions for what to include in the statement. The statement also said that Vera did not want to have any contact with David and that she was frightened of him, which was later proven not to be true. The AVO hearing occurred on the 22nd of September 1999, without David present, and the AVO orders were made. In considering the AVO many years later, in these proceedings before the Supreme Court after Vera's death, the court determined that the AVO proceedings were an abuse of the process of the court. Quote, They were not brought to protect Mrs Simpson from any harm she feared from Mr Dickman but were brought by Mrs. Simpson's neighbours and family to prevent Mr. Dickman's taking steps that would enable Mrs. Simpson to change her will again, end quote. 
About two weeks after the AVO hearing, there was a hearing before the Guardianship Tribunal. In the application to the tribunal, they sought that a guardian and financial manager be appointed for Vera. For this application to be successful, they would need to prove that Vera did not have capacity. This was a silly step, because if she didn't have capacity to manage her affairs at the start of October, how did she have capacity to do her will in September? The AVO was mentioned in the tribunal hearing, and the tribunal noted that, quote, Mr. Nicholson and Mr. Jeske have in fact commenced proceedings on Mrs. Simpson's behalf for an apprehended violence order against Mr. Dickman to prevent him from visiting her at the hostel. During the hearing, Mrs. Simpson clearly expressed her wish to have Mr. Dickman and his wife continue to visit and take her out as they have done in the past. End quote. During the tribunal hearing, Jeske tried to show that David was taking financial advantage of Vera. As evidence, he referred to two cheques from Vera's bank account made out to David, and the caveat David had on Vera's North Balgala property. One of the cheques was from August 1998, so over a year earlier, and it was for $2,514, and was in fact repayment of some accommodation fees David had paid on Vera's behalf. The other cheque was from December 1998 and was for $3,000 and was reimbursement for expenses on Vera's behalf. David was able to produce evidence that the expenses were over $3,000, so he wasn't even being reimbursed in full. The North Balgala property I mentioned earlier, David had paid the full purchase price but had never gotten around to transferring it into his name. He was able to prove this and the caveat on the property was to protect his interest. So none of the claims of financial abuse were substantiated. Despite this, the tribunal appointed the protective commissioner to manage Vera's money and property and appointed the public guardian to make medical and lifestyle decisions on her behalf. The guardian also had the authority to decide who could visit Vera. Following the appointment of the public guardian, the AVO proceedings against David were withdrawn. From this point on, if David wanted to see Vera, he would need to apply to the public guardian for permission. However, David only spoke to her once more after the hearing. He remembers that she called once in the month after the hearing. She asked him why he hadn't been to visit her. He explained that she had signed the statement saying that she did not want to see him again. Vera had a fall in November and was taken to hospital. David contacted the public guardian and said he would like to visit Vera and they arranged for him to visit her on a Wednesday night. The public guardian contacted Nicholson to tell him about the visit and make sure he wasn't going to be present at the same time, to avoid any confrontation. Nicholson later rang the public guardian and told him that Vera wasn't sure whether she wanted to see David, and the visit was cancelled. The public guardian phoned Vera on the 18th of November, and Vera said that she would not like to see David unless she had support with her. Jeske and Nicholson were still visiting Vera about this time, and it was later determined by the court that her reluctance to see David was because of their influence. By 1st December, Vera was discharged from hospital and back in the hostel. She told the public guardian that she wanted to continue her relationship with David. The public guardian called David and told him Vera would like him to visit. He indicated that he was unsure because of the AVO and the guardianship hearing, but said that he would let the public guardian know what days he could visit, but he never did. The next year, on the 20th of January, Vera again asked why David hadn't come to see her. She told the public guardian that she had a really good relationship with David 
and could not understand why he does not visit. Without any prompting, she said that he had always been good to her, had brought her clothes, and had never asked her for money or discussed a will. The next month, Vera was asking to see David, and again in May. After that, the public guardian's notes don't mention David again. Perhaps, with her diminishing capacity, Vera forgot about him. It's hard to think that she would forget someone who was part of her life for almost 40 years. Maybe she just stopped asking for him. Or maybe they just stopped recording it. Vera died on the 16th of September 2005, having never seen David again. The legal case. A big part of this case deals with probate and administration of the estate, but I won't go into it in too much detail. The estate was administered in accordance with that last will that was done on the 14th of September 1999, with everything going to the Salvation Army. The estate was distributed to the Salvation Army by the end of 2006. It was many years out of time that David started proceedings to get Vera's estate based on the argument that Vera did not have capacity to make that last will, or alternatively, on the basis that the assets of the estate were held on a constructive trust for him. David argued that Vera had promised him that if he visited her and cared for her, she would leave him her estate, or at the very least her house. He argued that he relied on this promise and continued to keep in contact with her. This is a tricky argument to make. In order to be successful in his claim for a constructive trust, he would need to show that he acted on the promise to his detriment. But is visiting an old friend really acting to your detriment? Only if the main reason you visit her is because of the promise, and not because of any affection you might hold for her, which makes you a terrible person. Or you're a lovely person who would have visited her anyway, in which case you didn't act to your detriment and there's no constructive trust. David tried to hedge his bets and say that he would have still visited her, but not as often. For this argument to work, David would also have to prove that Vera actually made that promise. The court found that given Vera was supposed to have made the promise sometime between 1991 and 1996, they weren't persuaded that David could recall precisely what Vera had said. This case was heard in 2012, more than 16 years after the comments were said to have been made. The court also found that he did not suffer substantial detriment as a result of spending time and caring for Vera. Thus, the claim for a constructive trust failed. The challenge in relation to the last will being invalid was made four years out of time. That alone didn't mean the challenge would fail. While the court found that David didn't provide an adequate reason for the delay, they also found that material evidence had not been lost and they could consider his case. So the court looked at whether Vera had capacity at the time of making her will and found, quote, There is no dispute that Mrs. Simpson would have understood the significance of the act of making a will. I also consider that, if free of pressure, she was capable of assessing what persons or institutions had a claim on her testamentary bounty, of evaluating the strengths of those claims, and discriminating between them. But owing to her extreme age, her physical weaknesses, and her emotional lability, I do not think that she was capable of standing up to the pressure imposed by others. End quote. 
the court found that there were suspicious circumstances around the creation of that last will. 1. The way in which Vera was told that she would be evicted from the home for non-payment of fees just before she made a will leaving everything to effectively the owners of that hostel, the Salvation Army. 2. That a member of staff told Nicholson and Jeske that her fees weren't paid. They are just her neighbours, why were they told anything at all? 3. The court also found that at that time, Nicholson and Jeske were pressuring Vera to change her will. 4. The solicitor who prepared the will had a conflict of interest. He was employed by the Salvation Army, they were his client, and he worked from its offices. Vera was also his client and should have received his full attention. However, how likely was he to discuss with Vera the option of not leaving everything to the Salvation Army, and who else she might want to leave her estate to? Given that the Salvation Army is his main client, how likely is he to bring that up? 5. Did she really get adequate legal advice? After all, Mr Hopper only saw her alone for about five minutes, and most of that time was taken up with talking about a power of attorney, not the will. 6. Mr Hopper prepared the second will without any instructions, without talking to Vera at all. She didn't ask him to do it, and didn't speak to him before she signed it. For these reasons, the court determined that the estate should not be administered in accordance with that last will dated the 14th of September 1999, or the one done only four days earlier on the 10th of September. On the basis that Vera lacked testamentary capacity at the time because of the pressure being exerted upon her, the court upheld the will dated 23rd of September 1998, which left Vera's estate to David. I won't say anything more about that because I'm more interested in how all this affected Vera. Final words. This case was dealing with what happened to Vera's money and property after her death. While I do think it is important to identify the true testamentary wishes of the deceased and uphold them as much as possible, I am looking at this case as I have with all the others from an elder abuse perspective. The fight between the parties in this case started while Vera was still alive and involved Vera, getting her to execute new documents, confusing her about what had been done and dragging her into disputes and proceedings she probably didn't understand. It had a strong impact on the last years of her life. Vera had been doing all right. She was in a hostel where she was getting the care she needed. She had David, who was like a son to her, who she had been close with for almost 40 years and who visited her at least once a week. But all of that was disturbed. By misinformation about unpaid fees and threats of eviction. By neighbours pressuring her to sign documents she didn't understand and causing confrontations at her hostel trying to stop her from seeing David. By a conflicted lawyer who barely saw her for 10 minutes. By AVO and guardianship proceedings that would cut David out of her life for good. How much pressure and harassment would it have taken to get her to agree that she didn't want to see him anymore? Can we really say that Nicholson, Jeske and Vera's cousins were acting in her best interest? How was her relationship with David harming her? There were accusations that David had befriended older women in the past for financial gain, but no evidence to support this. What there was, was evidence that David was looking after her finances and was making sure all her bills were paid. There was evidence that David was advocating for her, 
in his correspondence to the managers of the hostel, trying to make sure that she got the best care possible. And there was evidence that he was her friend, that he visited her at least once a week when he would take her out of the hostel to go to the hydrotherapy pool. Let's play devil's advocate. If someone who was actually there when all of this went down was to look at the relationship and get the strong impression that David Dickman was befriending Vera for financial gain, that it was so obvious that her neighbours, her family and staff at the hostel were concerned enough to get involved. After all, they weren't the beneficiaries of that last will, so what made them go to so much effort? Maybe they were honestly concerned for Vera. Well, firstly, if that's the case, he's playing an extremely long game, given that they became friends in 1965. Secondly, given that this was such a long relationship, who is to say that Vera didn't know what was going on, and had made the decision that leaving David her estate was actually a small price to pay to get companionship and assistance in her old age? Maybe she really did say to him, you continue to visit me and I'll leave you everything I own. Finally, you would still need to put Vera's interest front and centre. Even if David only visited her as much as he did because of that promise, was he causing her any harm? Was she better off having him in her life? From October 1999 until her death in September 2005, Vera never saw David again. It's not clear why this was. Maybe he was still affected by everything that had happened, the statement she had made that she didn't want to see him. Maybe he was worried about future run-ins with the neighbours, whether they would continue to influence her and kick things off all over again. I would be interested to know how often Nicholson, Jeske and the cousins visited Vera during that time. I hope they did visit her, because once they were successful in removing David from Vera's life, she would have been pretty lonely without him. That was the case of Dickman versus Holly. The case citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on this case or recommendations of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. Remember, if you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call the helpline on 1800 353 374. Or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 02 4324 5611.